I'm obviously not a technical guy, <laughs> um, but I am an elder at JICF. And uh, for those of you that know me, my name is Mike uh, Brumell. Um, I think I know most of you, um, but uh, not, uh, not all. As uh, you may be aware, if you've been joining us uh, over the last five weeks, we've been going through a series on God's original design. We've been looking at the first uh, two and now the third chapter of Genesis. And uh, we'll be discussing uh, redemption this morning. We talked about the natural world, how God created the world. We talked about how God created uh, mankind. Uh, we talked about um, how God created us to work. We talked about family uh, last week. Uh, Hendra spoke on that. And then today we're going to talk about uh, redemption. Um, the redemption part is part of God's original design, but what come, came before the redemption, which is the fall of Adam and Eve, their falling into sin, was not part of what God uh, had intended, what God wanted, but he, something he knew would happen. And uh, this is a, a artist's uh, picture. Um, I'm not sure who the artist is, but it's an artist's picture of what uh, the world may have looked like at the end of the, the second chapter when God created uh, the world, the animals, uh, man and woman. Um, it's a very beautiful uh, scene. I think most of us would love to, love to be there. Um, unfortunately, there were some things that happened that, that uh, things went down pretty quickly from there. This morning, as we look at chapter 3, um, my objective is uh, for us to know how to prepare for and respond to Satan when he tempts us to disobey God, and to understand the punishment we may face and mercy available when we fail to obey God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you created all that is in the world today that we can see. And we also acknowledge that Adam and Eve, our forefathers, our forebearers, were the ones that um, fell into sin. And we have faced the consequences of that sin. Father, we also acknowledge that, that we sin and that many of the things we face in life are the consequences of our own sin. I pray this morning as we uh, look at your word, you would help us better understand what our responsibility is to avoid disobedience from you, to avoid disobeying you, and to prepare ourselves so that uh, we can avoid that and, and to be thankful when we do fail that you have made a provision for us that we might be redeemed. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Now let's uh, read through uh, chapter 3. It's, it's a, a long uh, chapter, um, but let's uh, read it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, 
and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to your children, or two children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed him. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, let's walk through this passage and try to uh, better understand uh, what it talks about. Um, the chapter 3 starts off with a scene in the Garden of Eden where we see a serpent talking to Eve. 
Now, who is the serpent? I think most, probably all of you would say it's Satan. <laughs> but actually, it doesn't say that in the passage itself. It just says the serpent. Um, but if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, um, in Revelation 12.9, it gives us a clue as to who that is. It says in uh, Revelation 12.9, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He, is, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. If you look at that passage in Revelation, it talks about what happened in heaven. There were angels. It talks about there was a, a war going on among the angels because Satan took a number of the angels and rebelled against God, it says. And Michael, the archangel, who I'm named after, by the way, <laughs> um, Michael uh, was the one that was the archangel, and they were um, sent um, to earth out of heaven. They were banished from, from um, heaven. So it says that they were hurled to earth, and this is what we see here. Perhaps Satan took the form of the serpent. It says, um, so let's see what exactly the serpent said to Eve. Now, the serpent says to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay. He's misquoting what God had said. Um, I'm not sure exactly how he would have heard that uh, because we, we do know that in chapter 2, we see God giving these commands to Adam. Eve was not there yet. Eve was not created yet, but God gave the commands to Adam. Maybe um, the serpent was nearby and heard what God's commands were. I don't know. Um, but Satan, or the serpent, says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Of course, that's not what God said, right? He didn't say you can't eat from any of these trees. In fact, God was quite... Uh, generous. He said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, except there's one in the middle of the garden you can't eat from, and that's the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that one. And so, um, obviously, he misquoted what God had said when he spoke to Eve. He also contradicted what God said. He says, you will certainly not die. Now, of course, God had said, you certainly will die. <laughs> so he contradicted what God did. He misquoted what God said. He contradicted what God said. And then he says something that's true, but he questions God's motivation. He says, um, God doesn't want you to eat from the, knowledge of, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So basically, God doesn't want you to become like him. He questions God's goodness, God's motivation for not allowing them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Eve responds to the serpent. She also misquotes God. <laughs> okay. She says, um, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tree in the garden, but God did say, we, we may eat from the trees in the garden, in, in contradiction of what Satan said, in response to what Satan said. But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, 
and you must not touch it or you will die. Now again, that wasn't what God had told Adam. God said to Adam, you must not eat from the tree. Eve is saying to Satan, God says we can't eat it and we can't touch it. Okay? Now, who knows where the problem came from? (laughs) Maybe Adam didn't properly communicate to his wife. Maybe Adam wasn't paying much attention and he didn't communicate to his wife what God's command was. Or perhaps he did communicate and Eve didn't properly state to Satan what the command was. But somehow the command wasn't properly understood or stated at least by, by um, the woman, Eve. Now, so in summary, Satan and Eve misquote God, both of them. <laughs> Satan misquoted God because he's trying to make God look bad. Eve misquoted God perhaps because she was careless or because her husband was careless. We don't know. And Satan also brings into question what God's motivation is for not allowing them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, I was, I was uh, thinking of when I was growing up, there were certain things that I wanted to do as a child. My parents didn't want me to do. They forbid me to do. Um, I remember uh, one, one case. There was a, I was in high school. There was a, a guy that lived not so far away, and he was kind of a friend at school, and I think he invited me over to his house. And my, my parents, or my mother in particular, didn't know him and said no. Okay. Um, I think at the time it really bothered me that, hey, don't you trust me? Why can't I go? What's the problem? Um, I, we, we moved away from there. We, we uh, uh, moved back to Dallas from Southern California where we lived. And <clears throat> we went back to visit uh, our house in Bakersfield. And somehow when I was there, I heard that that particular guy, Kevin, was now in a federal penitentiary as a drug dealer. <laughs> now... Now, I'm sure my parents, looking back, I'm sure my parents loved me. They weren't trying to make my life difficult. Uh, but they, they cared enough for me that they cert- set certain boundaries for me. They wanted me to hang around people that were good for me and not bad for me. You know, it might be like a, um, a parent with a young child. And if you have a, a gas stove, the, the, when you turn the stove on, you know, it looks very beautiful. It's, you know, orange colors, yellow colors, blue. Um, I can see as a young child, maybe you would like to touch because it's so beautiful. But your parents, hopefully, don't allow you to do that. They keep you away from the gas stove. They would, if you started to touch, they would slap your hand because they didn't want you to, to injure yourself. You, they don't want you to get burned. Or maybe you as a child wanted to, to go out into the street and play. And your parents said, no, you can't go into the street. You know, maybe, you, oh, why not? Everybody else is going into the street. Why can't I go too? But again, it's because your parents love you. They want to do something for your own good. 
Um, today in, in Western countries, you know, I'm seeing a lot of cases where you have children that are confused about their sexual identity and you have young boys that want to become young girls or young girls that want to become young boys. And what happens, what's sad for me, is rather than a parent looking out for the, the good, long-term good of their kids, they're going along <laughs> with their kids. And maybe they're introducing puberty blockers, or maybe in some cases the kids actually have sex change operations. You know, young girls will have their breasts removed or you know, whatever. And um, what's happening now is some of the kids are growing up and realizing, what happened? My parents, my doctors weren't looking out for me. Nobody was care caring for me. At the time, they really pushed it. But the parents weren't looking out for their own good. And I think in this case, with Adam and Eve, God is looking out for the good of Adam and Eve because he knows he doesn't want them to suffer, which is what they would do if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In this uh, verse in uh, Deuteronomy, Moses is talking to the nation of Israel, and he's talking about the fact that when they go into the land, they are to be obeying the commands of God. And, it's, and it says they're to love him, they're to serve him, etc. And it mentions that all these commands are there for their own good. It's not because God doesn't want us to have fun. In fact, God wants us to enjoy life. Well, God wants us to do well. And he's setting out these commands because he wants the best for us. God protects us from doing things that are going to harm us and harm other people. What are the consequences of this? Well, we'll look at the disobedience and then what what happened, the, the, the attempt to cover up and the excuses that were given. It talks here about um, Adam and Eve's disobedience. It says, <clears throat> when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So she, she sinned, she disobeyed God, and she also encouraged her husband to disobey God. Interestingly, it says um, her husband who was with her. So I don't know if the husband was watching this, how, when Satan and Eve were talking to each other, if he was just standing by, um, not doing anything. Um, it kind of implies that, doesn't it? I remember going through authentic manhood, and there was this, this one of the terms that um, was used is, Men were encouraged to resist passivity. In this case, Adam was very passive. He was just allowing his wife to do something that was wrong. And he himself listened to his wife, and he did the same. The attempted cover-up. Um, Sometimes, uh, I know in politics they say sometimes the cover-up is worse than the crime. I don't think that's the case here. I think the crime was worse than the cover-up. But nonetheless, they did attempt to cover up for their own sin. They, they covered up in two ways. They, they made fig leaves because they were ashamed to cover their nakedness. And they hid from God. 
So it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's interesting that it talks about God was walking in the garden. God took human form, just as we see in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe this was the Lord Jesus Christ, but that would be speculation. But they tried to cover their shame, their guilt, by doing things, by hiding. Um, Again, for those of you that are parents, I've heard sometimes, I think I remember when I was a kid as well, if I did something wrong that I knew was wrong, maybe I would hide from my parents because I didn't want to be punished. <laughs> you, you want to um, stay away from facing your mother and father because you know that they're going to get mad at you if they know what you did. Sometimes even when you break things, if you break a jar or something else in your house, you're ashamed <laughs> and you, you, maybe you try to get rid of the evidence <laughs> or you, you hide um, because you're afraid of getting punished. This is what they apparently were doing. I've seen that even with adults. Sometimes when people fall into sin, they start not coming to church. They start avoiding their Christian friends because it makes them feel guilty because of what they've done. And so I would encourage you, if you see somebody kind of pulling away from the faith, the Christian faith, the Christian community, we need to seek them out for that reason. Maybe they have fallen into sin and they need to get our help. After the cover-up, they start making excuses. Um, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, of course, God knew exactly where he was because God knows everything, right? So these are rhetorical questions. But he says, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Um, I don't quite know why he was afraid because he was naked, to be honest. Um, if I was naked, I wouldn't be afraid, not necessarily. But um, I, I would be ashamed <laughs> if he's not afraid. But, and, he, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So I call this the blame game. Satan, Eve is blaming the serpent, right? But Adam is blaming Eve, and not only blaming Eve, he's blaming God because he says, God, you're the one that put her here. <laughs> the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the woman blames the serpent. Um, I think this is a big, big, big problem in at least the Western world today. I can speak for the United States or Canada or other places. We have a term called victimization, 
We're all victims of something. We blame things outside of ourselves. We don't take responsibility for our own actions. You know, I've, I, I was watching the news uh, the other day, and there was some lady whose son, I think, just murdered somebody, and there was a <clears throat> television reporter that was asking this lady about her son having committed a murder. And she was on, on air, and she was crying, and she says, society has failed my son. <laughs> you know, I'm saying to myself, lady, you got to take some responsibility, but ultimately your son's got to take some responsibility. She didn't teach her son to take responsibility. I can just see when she, when she was growing up, it was always somebody else's fault, and her son probably picked up that same kind of attitude. You know, as, as, as Christians, we've been learning in the first few chapters of Genesis that we are created in God's image. And part of what that means is we can reason. Unlike animals, we can reason, and we have the ability to make choices. And it's very important we recognize that fact. Yes, our, our genes, our, our environment, our impact, our impacting us, they have, have their influences on us, but ultimately God has given us, because we're made in his image, the ability to make choices as to what we do. I, I remember when I was uh, in university many years ago at Southern Methodist University, and I was taking a class, and I was maybe a, been a Christian about a year and a half, I think, and um, we had a, a course, and they were, the, the debate was, are you a product of your genes, or are you a product of your environment? Yeah, nature or nurture, what is which, which one of these has caused you to be the person you are today? Some people would say it's your genes, your genetic makeup. Some people would say it was the environment that you grew up in. So that was a debate. And I realized as a new Christian, I thought, I think they're missing something. I think those things are influences on us, but ultimately, because we're made in God's image, we have the ability to choose. I'm not the automatic result of my genes plus my environment. Those are influences on me, but not, they don't cause me to do what I do. I have to take responsibility. And just like Adam and Eve were not taking responsibility for their sin, I'm afraid that often today we don't take, our, take responsibility. We tend to blame someone else, whether it's our genes or environment or whether it's our spouse or I mean, who knows? <laughs> we blame somebody else for doing what we're doing. This is, I, I just put this in a chart. I said the worldview typically is you are the automatic result of your genes and your environment in some combination. Your, your words, your actions are, are caused by your genes and your environment. So, you know, if, you're, if you go to McDonald's and you spill coffee on yourself, what do you do? You blame McDonald's and you sue for a million dollars. Right? <laughs> Instead of taking responsibility for the fact that you spilled coffee on yourself, you know? I think our biblical worldview is that we're influenced by our genes and environment, but ultimately we're made in God's image and we, he's given us the ability to choose. There, there, are, some, there are some things. I, I, I was never meant to play in the NBA. Obviously, I don't have the physical makeup to be an NBA player. Um, so there's limitations, of course genetically speaking, but in terms of making decisions as to whether to obey God or disobey God, <clears throat> I um, have full control of what I do. If my parents were alcoholics, I can't 
blame, if I'm an alcoholic, I can't blame my parents. They were influences on me, maybe genetically. I have a, a tendency to be, uh, to, to uh, easily get plastered with, with alcohol, or maybe I have a, I, I saw it up when I was growing up at home. I saw my parents both drinking, and so I might have a, an influence there. But ultimately, I make the decision as to whether I pick up that glass of alcohol and start becoming an alcoholic. 1 Corinthians 10 says, um, it reminds us that, that there's nothing that, God, that we're faced with, no temptation we're faced with that we have, don't have the ability to resist. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There's no temptation you face that you cannot resist. And don't blame your genes and don't blame your environment if you are unable to resist. Punishment. How did God punish the serpent, the woman? I call her the woman because he hasn't given her the name Eve yet, by the way. And, and uh, how did he punish Adam? Well, the serpent is punished. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I remember being a little bit confused about this because I thought he's already... I remember that when the serpent is testing and tempting Eve, he's already a snake, right? So what does it mean here that he's going to have to crawl on his belly because he was already crawling on his belly, right? Okay? But actually, as I, I was studying this, I realize that um, if you look at Genesis 3.1, which is the, the lower part of uh, the right-hand side, it actually describes the serpent as a, a wild animal. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And in fact, in Genesis 1, where it talks about the different kind of creatures that God created, it said, uh, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. And there were three kinds. There were livestock, there were domesticated animals, there were creatures that moved along the ground, and there were wild animals. So it looks like what happened actually is Satan, or the serpent, was initially, when he tempted Eve, was a wild animal. He wasn't a snake as we saw it today. But the fact that he became a snake was the uh, part of the curse, that he would have to crawl on his belly. But prior to that, he wasn't crawling on his belly. He was just a, a wild animal like many undomesticated animals. Um, but Satan apparently had taken the, uh, taken the form of this, this serpent, and he was, the serpent itself was uh, uh, cursed in this way. It also says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So it's understood that there would be offspring from the woman, and there would be um, offspring from the serpent. And it talks about um, one will crush the, the, the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the offspring, offspring of, of uh, the serpent. But the serpent would strike the heel or do some damage to the offspring of the woman. Um, I've heard that many, I've heard a number of sermons where that's interpreted and it's referring to um, Jesus 
and it's referring to the fact that um, the serpent attacked, or the serpent's offspring went ahead and attacked um, Jesus and, and had him crucified. But ultimately, Jesus was the one that uh, had victory over Satan. And I couldn't find any verse to support that, actually, in, in the Bible. Um, but it was interesting. I, I looked in among uh, the ancient church fathers. Um, there's a, a gentleman named Arrhenus. This is in the second century A.D. And his interpretation was just what I, I explained to you. Um, he was a uh, discipled by Polycarp, who was discipled by the Apostle John. So it was, he was pretty close to the, the apostles, and that was his understanding of what this particular verse meant. It's talking about the ultimate victory of Jesus over uh, death through his resurrection um, and the fact that he would crush, um, ultimately crush Satan, who was trying to uh, attack him. The woman, how is she punished? Well, it says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Um, I have never had a child, and I don't believe that a man can never have a child, <laughs> which is a controversial comment to make today, apparently. <laughs> but, um, so you men, you certainly don't know what childbirth is like. Um, are you women that have had kids? I assume you realize how painful it is. And I'm, I, I can see with pic pictures of women that are giving birth to children that it looks like a very, very painful thing. Uh, the closest I've come is having a kidney stone. Um, and I heard, and I've actually found this quote, it said, childbirth is well known as one of the most painful experiences that humans can have. However, the pain of having a kidney stone is considered to be comparable. So if men, if you've had kidney stones, at least you have some idea of what it's like to have, have a child. Um, I, I, was, uh, uh, I was in uh, uh, Istanbul, Turkey, because Dan Fennell had taken a group of us to uh, go to the seven churches in, in Turkey. And uh, we were in Istanbul, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and I had severe, severe pain. Uh, and Johan Susi, who was with us from the church, took me to the emergency room, and uh, I went to the, the, the doctor there, uh, the Muslim doctor that um, gave me some pills and told me to go home and drink beer <laughs> to, so that I passed the kidney stone. Anyway, um, but, but that's one of the punishments. Certainly, Eve or the woman was going to have children before the, the, the woman disobeyed God, but the punishment was that the childbirth, the childbearing would become a painful thing. Another thing, and this, is, this also is a, a little bit of a confusing thing that I've, I've um, looked over this way and that way. To the woman, it says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, when I see the word desire, I'm thinking of some, of some wife it says, oh, my husband is just so great. And then, but the husband is like an ogre or something, and he's, you know, beating his wife. You know, that's, that's, you're going to have to suffer because you're going to really love your husband, but your wife is going to, you know, really be cruel to you. Um, but as I looked at this, I don't think that that's actually 
what it means. Um, and the reason I say that is a very similar expression is used in Genesis 4. And the, the context of this is, is, is Cain and Abel, okay? You may recall that um, it talks about Cain and Abel who were brothers. They both offered a sacrifice to God. Cain offered uh, Siron, he offered vegetables or animals, plants rather. And then uh, Cain uh, offered uh, uh, an animal that had been killed. Okay? And it said God accepted the sacrifice of Abel, but he didn't, uh, wasn't pleased with the sacrifice of Cain. And it says God spoke to Cain. And he said, he said this very thing. He says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why are you angry that I accepted Abel's offering, but I wasn't pleased with your offering? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, not be, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Okay? So the implication here is that, that sin was, was ready to control Cain. And in fact, later it did because he killed his brother, right? It said Cain was potentially going to be controlled by sin. That was the desire that sin had to control Cain. But you, Cain, must overcome that desire that sin has to control you. So if we... If we look at that, that expression, and we talk here about what's being referred to in, in uh, Genesis 3.16, when it says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I, I, I interpret that as a struggle going on in the marriage <laughs> between the husband and the wife, where the wife's desire is to control the husband, and the husband is trying to control the wife, ruling over the wife. Maybe not improperly, maybe he's not doing anything harshly, but there's going to be a, a power struggle between the two. Sometimes, um, it's quite understandable. As we said, you know, some men, some husbands are very passive. They're not taking any leadership at all, and the wife needs to, feels like she needs to take, take charge and step in because the, the, the husband's not leading as he should. And sometimes I, I, I look at my own family, and you probably look at your families, and you can see some of that kind of thing going on. But anyway, there's a, what, what's pretty clear is because of the sin of, of uh, Eve, of the woman, that there's going to be a power struggle that's going to result in the marriage. The marriage is, is not going to be harmonious like it was intended to be. What happened to Adam? It says... Uh, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So what's happening now is all of a sudden, whereas work was, in, was intended before the fall, they were supposed to be in the garden, they were supposed to cultivate the garden. What happened is, it would become painful work. Just like with Eve, she was going to be giving childbirth before, but or birth to children, rather, before, but it became very painful for her. So, same way with Adam. The, the same word is used for pain. 
both Adam and Eve are going to experience pain. Eve in childbirth, pain for the men in the toil that they do. And then the other part of the punishment is Adam is reminded that what God said was true. Remember, God said, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. And Adam is reminded by God of this. He says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. God gave them many years beyond this to live, but eventually they would die. And he reminds them that you're going to return to dust. It says in Hebrews, just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment. We're all going to die. Everyone in this room, unless the Lord comes back before them, is going to die. And you're going to return to the ground from which you were, which Adam was taken. This is a, a picture of where I'm going to be buried, by the way. Fairhaven Memorial Park in Santa Ana, California. In case you ever want to visit me in future years. But it's kind of a reminder. I thought, you know, it's probably not too bad for me to be reminded of where I'm going to end up. So I live my life in light of that fact, remembering that I'm not living forever. Um, <clears throat> I want to read to you um, a little uh, blurb that was written by Randy Alcorn. He's a, he's a Christian author. He's a pastor. Um, I think Suparno knows him. From, he's written book, very many books on, on money and finances. Um, somebody gave this to me. I can't even remember who, but I've kept this, and I've read this uh, many times. Um, it talks about the consequences of sin. Um, we um, often fail to recognize how harmful sin can be. You know, we, we saw the damage that was done by Adam and Eve. It's because of Adam and Eve that we all die today. It's because of Adam and Eve we're not living in the Garden of Eden. Um, but there's a lot of pain, sickness, death, suffering in the world today that are the consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve and the sin that we commit as well. Um, I'd like to read this to you. Um, one of the reasons I read it is because it, it kind of helps me re think about the consequences of what happens or what would happen if I were to commit sin. And in particular, it's talking in here about uh, sexual immorality. He says, I met with a man who had been a leader in a Christian organization until he committed immorality. I asked him what could have been done to prevent this. He paused only for a moment, then said with haunting pain and precision, if only I had really known, really thought through, and weighed what it would cost me and my family and my Lord. I honestly believe I never would have done it. He says, some years ago, my friend Alan Hlafka 
and I both developed lists of all the specific consequences we could think of that would result from our immorality as pastors. And I know we're not pastors. Um, we're elders in the church. Those of us, there's some of you that are leading different ministries. You're leading perhaps in your home. But the, the list that he came up with was um, devastating. He says it spoke more powerfully than any sermon or article on the subject. Periodically, especially when traveling or when in a time of temptation or weakness, we read through this list. And if you want to get a copy of this list, I'm happy to send it to you. If you send me an email, I'll, I'll send it back to you. It says in a personal, personal and tangible way, it brings home God's inviolate law of choice and consequence. It cuts through the fog of rationalization and fills our hearts with a healthy, motivating fear of God. We find that when we begin to think unclearly, re reviewing this list yanks us back to the reality of the law of the harvest and the need both to fear God and the consequences of sin. Um, he says, an edited version of our combined list follows. They made the list, they combined it. He says, he included in this um, the name of his wife and the name of his daughters, which I will read as I read it. Um, but he says, you could come up with your own list and you can put your own, the name of your spouse or your kids or whoever else in it if you wish. He says, some of the consequences would be unique to me, just as some of yours would be unique to you. I recommend you use this as the basis for your own list. Then include those other consequences that would be uniquely yours. The idea, of course, is not to focus on sin, but on the consequences of sin, thereby encouraging us to refocus on the Lord and take steps of wisdom and purity that keep us from falling. I don't think Adam and Eve really thought through the consequences of sin before they did it. And I think oftentimes we fail to think through the consequences. He says, while God can forgive and bring beauty out of ashes, that's a message to those who have already sinned, not to those who are contemplating sin. We must put the focus where Scripture does on the love of God and fear of God, both of which should act in concert to motivate us to holy obedience. And this is his list, which I'm going to read. Um, every time I read this, even privately, I kind of tear up because I, I just think of the damage that I could do if I were to fall into sin. Damage I do to myself, the damage I would do to you, the damage I would do to church, the damage I would do to God's name. You know? Okay, here's a list. Grieving my Lord, displeasing the one whose opinion most matters. Dragging into the mud Christ's sacred reputation. Loss of reward and commendation from God. Having to one day look Jesus in the face at the judgment seat and give an account of why I did it. Forcing God to discipline me in various ways following in the footsteps of men I know whose immorality forfeited their ministry and caused me to shudder. 
suffering of innocent people around me who would get hit by my shrapnel. Untold hurt to Nancy, my best friend and loyal wife. Loss of Nancy's respect and trust. Hurt to and loss of credibility with my beloved daughters, Karina and Angela. They might say, why listen to a man who's betrayed mom and us? If my blindness should continue or my family be unable to forgive, I could lose my wife and my children forever. Shame to my family. Why isn't daddy a pastor anymore? The cruel comments of others who would invariably find out. Shame to my church family. Shame and hurt to my fellow pastors and elders. Shame and hurt to my friends, and especially those I've led to Christ and discipled. Guilt, awfully hard to shake. Even though God would forgive me, would I forgive myself? Plaguing memories and flashbacks that could taint future intimacy with my wife. Disqualifying myself after having preached to others. Surrender of the things I am called to do and love to do. And in his case, that was to preach and teach and write and minister to others. Forfeiting forever certain opportunities to serve God. Years of training and experience in ministry wasted for a long period of time, maybe permanently. Being haunted by my sin as I look in the eyes of others and having it all dredged up again wherever I go and whatever I do. Undermining the hard work and prayers of others by saying to our community, this is a hypocrite who can take seriously anything he and his church have said and done. Laughter, rejoicing in blasphemous smugness by those who disrespect God and the church. I, I can see that in newspapers, by the way, when Christian leaders fall. There's a lot of non-Christians out there that say, "That's look at these guys, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Just like I told you. Bringing great pleasure to Satan, the enemy of God. I'm sure Satan was very happy when Eve and Adam ate the apple. Can't you imagine how much pleasure that gave him? Heaping judgment and endless problems on the person I have committed my adultery with. Possible diseases, gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, herpes, and AIDS. Pain, constant reminder, a constant reminder to me and my wife, possible infection of Nancy, or in the case of AIDS, even causing her death, as well as mine. Possible pregnancy with its personal and financial implications, including a lifelong reminder of sin to me and my family. And then finally, loss of self-respect, 
discrediting my own name and invoking shame and lifelong embarrassment upon myself. These are only some of the consequences if only we would rehearse in advance the ugly and overwhelming consequences of immorality, we would be far more prone to avoid it. May we live each day in the love and fear of God. Okay. Whoops. Sorry. So what happens after all these curses? Well, it says Adam gives a name to his wife, gives a name to the woman, and the name was Eve. And it, it's because the, the name uh, indicates that she would become the mother of all the living. It looks like in this passage, you know, when, you, when uh, Adam and Eve name the animals, it showed that they were, they had some authority over the animals. And likewise, it seems to be here that by Adam naming his wife, there was a position of authority in their relationship. Yes, it's true. It's God had commanded um, both Adam and Eve to be fruitful and subdue the earth, and rule over the animals. Together they were to rule. And by the way, I think together they're to rule over children as well. Um, and God had made um, Eve as a person that would help him fulfill that role, and together they would be able to, um, to rule. But it does seem to be, in any kind of relationship, there has to be a situation where if there's a, is there a dispute, there has to be a tiebreaker. <laughs> Ideally, in a husband and wife situation, and I think with Adam and Eve, as they w did what they were commanded by God to do, they would talk about things. But it seems like by the fact that Adam named his wife, that ultimately Adam would have been the tiebreaker in that relationship. Redemption. It's a word that we don't use very often, so I just I took the definition from Wikipedia um, that I think is a biblical definition. It says, the term implies that something has been paid for or bought back, like a slave who has been set free through the payment of a ransom. And this is exactly what God did. After Adam and Eve sinned, after the punishment was uh, meted out, um, God redeemed Adam and Eve. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He took away the fig leaves that they had provided for themselves and he gave them an animal skin. Do you realize that what happened? This was the first thing that died. <laughs> Until that, there was no death. And it was a sacrifice of an animal because as the Jewish people would soon learn, the shedding of blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sin. It says in Hebrews 9.22, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. They tried to cover their sin 
with animal leaves. God says, no, you can't cover your sin that way. It's going to take the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. And ultimately, we see in the Old Testament that sacrificial system for the forgiveness of sin. If they committed a sin, they were to go to the temple and they were to sacrifice an animal. The animal would be punished in their place. And it's a reminder of God's justice, that God's merciful, yes, but there's consequences for the sin, and the sin has to be paid for. And God is um, merciful enough so that we don't have to pay the sin, but that ultimately Jesus, who is the Passover lamb, has paid the sin on our behalf. And what Satan said was true. The Lord God said, the man now has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Um, I, I don't particularly, as, I've, as I studied this, the passage, um, I would have wished the translators would have said good and bad, not good and evil. Because I think when we say good and evil, that sounds like a moral um, uh, judgment. But I think if you look at the first couple chapters of, of, actually the first chapter of Genesis, when God created things, it said God said it was good. God said it was good. God said it was good. God said it was very good when he created man. And it's not talking about a moral judgment. I think it's, it's talking about, you know, things that were good as opposed to things that were bad. Later on in some of the Old Testament, when there was an earthquake or a fire, it would say that's, it would use the same Hebrew word as, as this. So it didn't necessarily imply it. Just what happened is by eating of the tree, whereas previously Adam and Eve would have only experienced good, now, for the first time, they're experiencing bad things, especially through the punishment that they were, um, where they were punished. And then, finally, it says that God banished Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And... Specifically, the reason it says he banished them out of the Garden of Eden is because the tree of life was there. And the tree of life, if they were continued to eat from the tree of life, they could live forever. But he kicked them out so that they would not be able to live forever. It says, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim, and flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, fortunately, this is, this is the end of chapter 3. But the fortunate thing is it doesn't, the story doesn't stop there. If you go all the way to the book of Revelation, what we see in chapters 21 and 22 is God recreates the Garden of Eden, and in that recreated Garden of Eden, guess what? There's the tree of life from which we can eat. We see in chapter 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city in the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Um, and I think this is a reference to the church prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. Just like in the Garden of Eden, God was in the garden with men. This is what's going to happen. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. 
and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer, there will no more be death or mourning or crying or pain. Just like the Garden of Eden before the fall. For the old order of things has passed away. And in chapter 22, it says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great city, the street of the city. On each side of this river stood, what? The tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The curse that we read about in Genesis 3 is taken away. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more light, or no more night, rather. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is a promise to those that have determined to follow God. Not everyone in the world will be there, though. It's only those that have have chosen to repent, to follow our Lord. It says um, in, in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is talking in Athens, and he says, Now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The man he's referring to, of course, is Jesus. And he will be our judge on the day of judgment. And he will determine whether we're going to spend eternity in the new Garden of Eden, in the new heaven and new earth, or we won't. Or we'll be sent to the place of eternal punishment. And I hope everyone in this room will be in that group. I hope we can all live there together in the new Garden of Eden in the new heaven and new earth. Let's pray. Father, we're just reminded of the consequences for sin. Father, help bring to our minds the consequences of sin before we commit sin, when we're tempted to sin. Father, we desire to obey you. We desire to live in the new heaven and new earth, in the new garden of Eden, with the trees of life. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.